You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. This is week one, the introduction to our study of Deuteronomy. We are really excited about this study. And I said that last year about Matthew, but it's, it's true every time. When we started this study prepping for it late last spring. And one night in June, I woke up about 3 a.m., and I couldn't get back to sleep because I was so excited about Deuteronomy. And I lay there just praising God and talking to him about it, and I remember saying, but Lord, it's six months until we get to teach this, and how will I wait? But it came. Now, maybe, maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, I can't imagine ever being that excited about the Bible and Deuteronomy, right? Okay, don't raise your hand, but if that's you, you are in the absolutely right place tonight because the prep team has been praying that as you work through the study, God will work in you that same joy and excitement that we've had as we've studied it. And really, the excitement is not about the book, but about the God who wants to reveal himself to us through this book, by the, through his word, by the power of his spirit. And in Deuteronomy... God is revealed through the words of Moses, impassioned words. Moses really knows God. Exodus says that God used to talk to Moses face to face as a man talks with a friend. Can you imagine that? I can't. And for 40 years now, when Deuteronomy opens, Moses has shepherded the Israelites He has been guiding, teaching, exhorting, rebuking, interceding. Sometimes he's even begged God not to kill them. But now Moses is about to die. He's not allowed to lead this brand new generation into the promised land. But he knows really well what they're like. And so he exhorts them passionately to listen to God, to obey, to do better. He wants them to love and serve God with all their hearts. Remember what God has said and done? He's like, you guys, you've gotta do better than they did before. You've gotta give it your heart. You gotta make it, because he's not gonna be there anymore. So put yourself in Moses' place. Imagine how fiercely he wants to impart his passion to them. Moses is not standing here tonight, obviously. You get me and the other teachers, but his passionate, spirit-filled words are here, and they're given to us as well as to the Israelites, so that just like the Israelites, we have the choice to choose life, flourishing life. And that's the point of this study. So how is this going to happen in WBF? How many are brand new to WBF? Wow, okay. So for those of you that know all this, you know, we're just, we need to rehash it. You see the WBF logo on the screen behind me. Our focus, as Lindsay said, is to promote spiritual growth by studying the Bible in an intergenerational community. We've got teaching, discussion, fellowship, prayer. The three words in the logo describe our main goals, and they're not just words. They really are goals, knowledge, affection, transformation. We want to grow in our knowledge of the Word and of God because the Bible is the foundation of our faith. We need to know it. And as we learn, we pray that we will also grow in our affection for God and for His ways 
God must become our treasure because our hearts will always chase our treasure. And then as we grow in knowledge and affection, we'll see the Holy Spirit bring transformation to our lives. So this semester, we're studying Deuteronomy, as Lindsay said. This is one way to study the Bible, digging deeply into a specific portion. But you also need a broad understanding of the whole Bible. I say this every year. Are you ready for it? I mean, I'll never quit either. If you've never read the whole Bible, why not make 2024 the year that you do it? And if you've never done it, try a chronological reading plan that puts the books in historical order because that really helps fit all those pieces together. And if you've read it all before, you can do it again. I read the Bible every year, and every year I see details and connections that I've never seen before after all these years. I'm always saying to David, hey, did you ever notice? And telling him something new. So you cannot ever outlive your need for Bible reading. I don't know what we'll do in heaven, but here on earth you need this. So dig in. But the study we're doing here is based on an inductive study method, looking at a smaller portion very carefully to glean the meaning that the author intended and then to apply it to our lives. And each lesson in your book has three main steps. The first one is what? Observation, I'm hearing it. Okay, now you're cheating, you can't open your... <laughs> What's the second one? Interpretation, and the last one is? Application, right. If there's a summary on page one if you want to look at it now. Um, we actually start, even before those three steps, by looking at the background or the context of whatever we're studying. Historical background, culture, immediate circumstances, all those things are important to help us understand a passage. And we're going to do some of that for Deuteronomy in a few minutes. So look in your, now do open your workbooks, look at page eight. That's the first homework. And you do the lesson before we come together. So lesson two that starts on page eight is your homework before class next week. So come with it ready to talk about. At the top of the page is a prayer. Don't overlook that. We don't base our studies solely on human reasoning. We believe that God desires to reveal himself to us and he will enlighten our minds and hearts through his Holy Spirit to hear him. So we want to bathe our study in prayer from beginning to end. And starting with a written prayer is just one way of getting us in the right frame of mind to do the whole study in a prayerful attitude. Okay, then we work through observation, carefully examining the text portion. You might read it more than once, <clears throat> look for details, for lists, for repeated words, for grammatical elements, take note of names and places and dates. This is scrutinizing in detail, this portion of text. <clears throat> so next is interpretation. What does it mean? We're trying to discern the meaning intended by the author, not what I can make it mean. We use critical thinking, looking up definitions, looking at cross-references, identifying the main point, summarizing. What about commentaries? They are great, but not yet. We would like you to do the homework on your own. 
without commentary help. We are learning to tackle the text on our own before we listen to someone else. Then when we have a good grasp of the meeting, finally we turn to application. What does this mean for me today? How do I test myself to see if I'm following this? How would it change my life if I really believed it and applied it? Is there something in my life I need to change? It's really tempting to read a verse and want to go straight to application, but first we need to do the work of observation and interpretation to grasp what the author meant, the truth that God desired to communicate to us through a human author. So for this study in particular, the process is a bit different when we get to Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 26. Deuteronomy is a complex book, and we've done some initial work to sort it out and arrange those chapters topically. So lessons five through eight have a slightly different format, and we'll explain that more when we get there. But the lessons before that and after that will follow the format that you're used to. <clears throat> okay, we know there will probably be weeks that you don't get all your homework done, right? <laughs> it happens. We understand that we want you to come to class anyway. No judgment. You don't have to hide your blank workbook from the rest of the people that you You've done that, right? <laughs> no, we don't need to do that. Ask them to pray for you instead. Nothing takes the place long-term of digging into the Word yourself and letting the Holy Spirit teach you before you come to the group meeting. So that should be our goal. Are you the kind of person that just has to fill in every blank and answer every question? Yeah, nodding. <laughs> I see that hand. If there's a question you can't answer or you don't understand, you have permission to leave it blank, okay? Don't stress about it. They say in Sunday school, Jesus is always the right answer, but that's not going to work here. So don't try it. But what you can do is bring your questions to the group time, and you can all work on it together. That's why we have a discussion time. So each week, you'll have time for discussion at your table, and then after that, you'll hear from one of the teachers. And after this week, the teaching will be shorter, but they gave me a lot to cover tonight. So, so in your workbook, we've got some extra resources to help you. Um, page one, I already mentioned, is an overview of the inductive study method. If you look on page two, it lists just some of the attributes of God to stimulate your thinking because you're going to be looking for characteristics of God in the passages. This is not an exhaustive list, but it, it'll start you thinking. Page three is a chart of God's work in history from the creation in Genesis to the consummation in Revelation. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Page four is space for any notes that you want to take tonight. Every lesson has a page at the end for teacher notes. And pages six and seven have a map and a list of historical events referred to in Deuteronomy. So if Deuteronomy mentions an event that you don't remember much about, you can look in Exodus or Numbers to read about it. The timeline along the bottom of the pages shows the order in which the events referred to in Deuteronomy actually occurred. You also have a scripture journal if you all picked one up. This is not just to read, but it's to take notes, 
make comments, underline, draw pictures, arrows, charts, doodles, anything that helps you retain the message in Deuteronomy. It doesn't have to be beautifully creative or artistic. Right? We don't all like that. So whether it looks more like a Rembrandt creation or Einstein scribblings, it doesn't matter. Just do whatever works for you. Do at least try the suggestions we give you for marking because we have a reason for asking you to do that. So before we focus on Deuteronomy itself, let's talk about the Old Testament in general. We believe that the Bible is one unified book describing the fullness of God's seamless plan. You need both Old and New Testaments. You hear that? I'll say it again. You need both the Old and the New Testament. You often hear misconceptions about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might hear that in the Old Testament, salvation was supposed to come through keeping the law. But in the New Testament, God sent Jesus as Savior. Not true. Salvation was always, even in the Old Testament, by grace through faith. The law was given after God rescued Israel. Then he gave the law to show how to live in close relationship to that holy God. Jesus did not come as plan B after the Mosaic law failed. You may also have heard people say that in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of laws and rules to keep in order to be holy, but in the New Testament, we just have to believe in Jesus and the work is done because God sees us as completely righteous now. Well, that's sort of true. Believing in Jesus brings us into salvation and it's different, but true salvation should always bring ongoing transformation. The New Testament description of a holy lifestyle lived in relationship to God is just as demanding as the Old Testament. Jesus kept saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say. And then he expanded and deepened what the Mosaic Law was asking people to do. So God still expects his people to grow toward holiness. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us far beyond anything that the Old Testament believers ever experienced. Some people think, too, that the New Testament focuses on the whole world, but in the Old Testament, God cared only about Israel. It's true. God chose Israel to be special among the nations, but Israel was to be a light and a witness to the nations around, a testimony to their great God and his powerful works for mankind. Remember how in Exodus, Moses would say to God, whenever God threatened to destroy the Israelites because of their sin, what will the nations around say about you if you destroy your own people? So that testimony was always important. The Old Testament repeatedly references God's heart for the nations and his desire for all peoples to know and worship him. So if it was one unified plan, why did God take so long to get around to sending his Messiah, right? That was a, it took a long time. God was carefully building a foundation upon which his character and his... Is that me? Okay. God was carefully building a foundation upon which his character, his heart, his purposes were displayed. 
And he gave prophecies by which the Messiah could be recognized. Depending on how you define them, there are between 300 and 400 prophecies relating to the Messiah in the Old Testament. When the Magi asked King Herod where to find the newborn king of the Jews, Herod's advisors knew exactly where to find the answer in Micah. So the whole Old Testament points to Jesus and prepares for Jesus. Jesus did not just keep the law. He was the fulfillment and the goal of the law, planned from the beginning. So turn to the part chart on page three, or if you, if you want, you can follow on the screen. Let's see how God's whole plan of salvation fits together. Before creation, God existed as three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect harmony and fellowship. Creation was not because God was lonely, but was an overflowing of his love and grace and glory. He created man, male and female, in his image to be unique in creation, capable of an intimate relationship with him. The sovereign God as creator holds all authority over his creation. We do not have the authority to change his standards. We don't even have the ability to ignore them or rebel against them, except on a very temporary basis. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. So as a consequence, humanity, along with the rest of creation, is fallen and distorted, separated from a holy God, under a curse that we're helpless to escape on our own. Man is still in God's image. Creation does display God's glory, but all of it is marred and distorted by sin. Romans 8 says that all creation groans in bondage. But even as God pronounced the curses in the Garden of Eden, he graciously gave the first promise of a savior, a seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan. These three facts are the foundation of the gospel. One, God's sovereign authority as creator. Two, man's outrageous rebellion, leaving him helpless under God's curse. And three, the provision by God of salvation. If you don't start with those concepts, you may end up seeing God as merely a wonderful helper who's there to improve our lives and make us comfortable. He doesn't make any demands. He wants us to be happy and do what feels good. Does that sound familiar? But it's not like that. So from Adam and Eve on, sin reigned. Cain killed his brother. Succeeding generations filled the world with such evil that God chose to rescue Noah and his family and destroy the rest of humanity in the flood. You see the ark and the rainbow on your chart, the sign of God's covenant promise. But Noah's descendants weren't any better. The same sin nature still prevailed. After they built the Tower of Babel, God dispersed them and confused their languages. Then God chose a man, Abraham, to begin the next step, building a nation. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see Abraham and Sarah there on your chart. 
God promised that Abraham's line would become a great nation and would possess the land of Canaan and would be a blessing to the whole world. Only God could start a nation with an old man and his old barren wife. Isaac, the miracle child, was born. Later, Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons were the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's son, Joseph, was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, but he rose in power to become second only to Pharaoh. When world famine came, his family came to live with him in Egypt. Generations passed. The Israelites grew in number, but they were enslaved by the Egyptians. God sent Moses to rescue them through a series of ten divine judgments. In Exodus, we called them the ten strikes instead of the ten plagues. Ask someone later if they remember why. It was two years ago. (laughs) Then came the first Passover and their escape through the Red Sea. In doing that, God humbled the greatest nation on earth at that time. And he plundered the riches of Egypt for the Israelites to take with them to the land God promised them centuries before. At Mount Sinai, God chose to make a covenant with those people that he'd already rescued. Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law, and all of Israel agreed to covenant with God. God didn't need a covenant with anyone. Mankind was obliged to obey him anyway. But God wanted an intimate relationship with his people to be not just their authority, but a loving, faithful, protective presence in their very midst. When it was time to enter Canaan, 12 spies were sent to scout out the land. When they returned, only Joshua and Caleb believed God's promise that they could take it over. The other 10 spies convinced the people that it was hopeless. So the people rebelled against God in fear and unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. He sentenced them to 40 years in the wilderness until everyone 20 and over except Caleb and Joshua had died. That's all those loopy lines on your chart. At the end of the 40 years, on the edge of the promised land, Moses preached his last sermons to the Israelites. That's Deuteronomy. Then he died, and Joshua brought them into the land. After they spread out and settled in the land, judges ruled over various parts of Israel for a few hundred years, but eventually the Israelites asked for a king. Saul, the first king, was deposed by God for his unfaithfulness. Then God raised up another king, David, and promised David that his kingly line would never end. David and his son Solomon ruled at the peak of Israel's glory. See their thrones on the chart? After Solomon died, the kingdom split into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah. And the line of David still ruled in Judah. Some kings followed God, but overall it was a downhill slide for both kingdoms. The people were idolatrous and unfaithful to God, but God stayed faithful to them. He sent prophets over and over to rebuke the kings and warn the people. The prophets also reminded the people that God in his covenant still planned good for them. They spoke of a Messiah, a Savior to come, and a future new world that would be beautiful beyond imagination, God reigning over all. But in the end, neither the northern nor the southern kingdom repented fully and returned to God. Just as he'd warned, God allowed first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom to be conquered by foreign armies and carried away in captivity. In biblical studies, we call that the exile. 
God promised that after 70 years of exile, the Israelites would be allowed to return to their land. And just as God promised, a remnant of the Israelites returned to Israel again. But the new nation never regained its former glory. It was almost always subjugated to more powerful nations. The Israelites didn't realize that God was shifting the focus of his plan before the focus was on the nation of Israel. Now with the coming Messiah, the main focus would be on the church established after Messiah's resurrection. If you were in the Matthew study last year, you may remember how hard it was for the Jews to understand what God was doing. They thought their greatest need was political, that God should restore the nation of Israel to her former glory. But God was actually meeting their greatest need by providing a means of reconciliation with him. God did not abandon Israel, but that nation would not now be the main instrument through which he would work. His new instrument, the church, would not be a political entity at all. So it was that after Israel's return from exile, followed by 400 years of silence from God, Jesus the Messiah was born. He was mostly unrecognized by his own people because he didn't fit their human expectations, although he did fit Old Testament prophecy. Jesus preached repentance and the coming kingdom of God, performed miracles, cast out demons. Crowds followed him, but most of the Jewish religious leaders were jealous of his following, and they hated his scathing denunciations of their hypocrisy and pretensions. Eventually, they persuaded the people to demand that he be crucified. But Jesus rose again on the third day. He appeared to many of his followers. He ascended to heaven after 40 days. From there, he sent the promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and God's new work, the church, was born. Same gospel plan, but taking a different form. The church grew and spread worldwide and now awaits the promised day of Christ's return, our eternal life with him and the restoration of creation itself to its former glory. So that's the big picture. Stop and take a deep breath, right? Now we're going to focus on Deuteronomy. That's, you can go to page four in your workbook. The name Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words. Deuteros means second and nomos is law. Deuteronomy was the name given to the book in the Septuagint. That was a really early translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. But it's not really accurate because Deuteronomy is so much more than just a rehash of the law in Exodus. The original name in Hebrew means these are the words because the Hebrew tradition was to use the first few words of a book to name it. So Deuteronomy 1.1, these are the words that Moses spoke. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Most of Deuteronomy was spoken by Moses in several sermons. Someone else, maybe Joshua, added the bit at the end describing the death of Moses. By the way, um, all the slides for all the lessons will be put up on the resource page at the LEFC website, not on all the other podcasts. When was Deuteronomy written? The sermons and covenant renewal take place at the end of 40 years of wandering, just before Israel enters the promised land. We aren't sure of the exact date of the Exodus, but when we studied Exodus, we dated it to about 1446 BC. You all still remember that, don't you? Yeah. Um, so 40 years later than that would be 1406 BC, 
Remember when we're using BC dates, we subtract to move forward to zero. So 40 years after 1446 is 1406 BC. To whom was it written? Moses was speaking to the Israelite generations that had grown up in the wilderness, people whose parents or grandparents had escaped Egypt in the Exodus, but then died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So this is the wilderness generations he's talking to, not the ones that left Egypt. The setting. Moses spoke on the plains of Moab at the eastern edge of the promised land. If you look at the map on page 6, the place where Moses spoke is number 12 on the east side of the Jordan River. The Israelites are finally about to enter the land promised by God. Deuteronomy 1-2 says it takes 11 days to go from Horeb or Sinai, where the law was given, to Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the promised land, where they turned back. Then Deuteronomy 1-3 says that in the 40th year, Moses spoke to the Israelites. Those two verses next to each other emphasize that they took 40 years to make a journey that should have taken a couple of weeks. Did you ever have a family road trip that felt like that? Yeah? They could have entered the land much sooner, but their rebellion sentenced them to a 40-year camping trip and graves in the wilderness. These next generations have traipsed around the desert for 40 years because their forebears didn't trust God. So how are they feeling? Angry that their parents and grandparents made them suffer? Determined to do better in their generation? Angry at God for 40-year judgment? Excited to receive God's promise at last, trusting God? Fearful of the battles ahead of them? Probably just plain tired of the desert? Just like us here, a mix of angry, anxious, fearful, tired, determined, excited. So this book is for us, too. And they were headed into a land full of gross pagan idolatry, things like child sacrifice and temple prostitution. What can Moses say that will keep them from falling into those Canaanite practices? How will they say step, stay separate and unstained and be a witness to the nations around them of the beauty and goodness of life under God's rule? So Moses is going to preach to them, really preach. So for genre, the type of literature, this is a collection of farewell sermons by Moses. A small amount of historical narrative to connect it. At the end, there's a song written by Moses and a benediction. I'm just stopping to let you finish writing. So looking at the book as a whole, what are some themes you'll see in Deuteronomy? Number one, the main theme is covenant renewal. Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant first made at Sinai, described in Exodus. Now Moses is leading new generations of Israelites to commit once more to God's covenant. God took the initiative in his desire to relate to them and chose to bind himself in covenant to his people. We'll talk more in another week or two about what covenant means. Second theme is God's love and faithfulness. Deuteronomy calls this a covenant of love. Malachi calls it a covenant of life and peace. 
God's loving covenant is designed to produce a flourishing life in those who follow him. Moses repeatedly tells the people that the law is for their good. And though the Israelites have been horribly unfaithful to God over and over again, God remains steadfastly faithful in his love toward his chosen people. The third theme is God's holiness. It's true that God is merciful and loving, but he is still holy and set apart. God calls for personal holiness and sanctification in those who want to relate to him. Israel needed to stay far away from the pagan practices around them. God's people must be set apart from the world and separated unto him. Number four is God's sovereignty. God's actions in the exodus and desert wanderings demonstrate his total sovereignty over nature, over the actions of individuals, and even over nations. He split the Red Sea. He miraculously provided food and water in the desert. He humbled Egypt. Now he plans to take the land of Canaan away from its inhabitants and hand it over to the Israelites. He has total authority. Number five is a redeemed community. God was not just redeeming individuals, but he was creating a redeemed community, a people whose interactions would display the goodness of God and of his law to a watching world. The law included radical ideas about social justice, integrity in business, showing no partiality toward the rich and powerful, care for the oppressed and weak, dignity and respect for all people, We live in a society with a Judeo-Christian background. We can't imagine how those concepts would drop like bombshells on the ancient Near Eastern culture. This is radical. Number six, faith and obedience are our response to God's character and actions. God doesn't just order us around. He first shows us who he is and what he's like so that everything we do is simply an appropriate response to him. God always takes the initiative. Providing salvation, offering covenant, he continually seeks us out. And number seven is remember and be careful. The word remember that's repeated in Deuteronomy is not just, oh yeah, I remember that, but take note of this. Give heed to this. Rehearse these things. Live in light of them. Disobedience to God carries far-reaching personal and communal consequences. Faith and relationship to God are not things to take lightly. As Moses says, this is life and death, so choose life. So that's a look ahead at the treasures in store for us, and they are treasures Are you ready to listen to Moses to share his passion and commitment to a flourishing life? Are you ready to open Deuteronomy and to allow God's word and his spirit along with the fellowship of women around you to change you for eternity? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Moses, for his love for you and for your people for his incredible determination and perseverance, his passionate commitment. 
I pray that we would learn from him and walk away with at least some of his passion for you, for your law, for your life. Thank you for your word that you've given it to us so that we can know you and in knowing you become more in the image of your son. So I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to all that you have for us here in Deuteronomy, that you would truly become more and more our treasure so that our hearts would chase after you and that we would be changed. So we commit these next weeks of study to you. Thank you for all that you plan to do far beyond anything we can imagine. And thank you most of all for your son, who was our savior, who has redeemed us and translated us into the kingdom of light. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.